Shalom. Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder, Longmont area of northern Colorado. This teaching was recorded in a live Midrashic setting. We've edited it for clarity, but you may notice some jumps where we've taken out inaudible comments and sidetracks. Enjoy the study. All right, so we're in Galatians, and we got through chapter 3, verse 14 last, last time we did this. And just since we've got a couple of folks that have come in since we started, I'm going to do a really fast recap of what's going on, and then we'll launch off on verse 15. And what's going on is Paul is writing a letter to a church that he established in Asia Minor, and he set up the church on one of his missionary trips, and in the interim, some people have come through from Jerusalem who were of the circumcision party. And you remember that there are in those who follow the way, which is what uh, the early messianics called themselves, there were a number of factions or parties, and the circumcision party was of the impression that you had to be circumcised and you had to keep the oral Torah in order to be saved. So these guys are coming through Galatians and they are talking to these brand new converts who don't know nothing about nothing and saying, all right, we understand Paul came through and he taught you this and he got you the Holy Spirit and all that's really good, but there's more to this. And in order to continue in the way, you've got to start doing all this other stuff. So Paul is writing to the Galatian church and saying, no, 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 that's not correct. And we specifically spent some time talking about the term works of the law, which is different from Torah. And works of the law are Pharisaic emendations to the Torah, which is known as the oral Torah. And Yeshua on numerous occasions would duke it out with the Pharisees over that because the Pharisees were adding to the law of Moses and were laying that extra stuff on people and and Yeshua was saying, no, that's not right. And so what is apparently happening here with the Galatian church is the circumcision party is coming in and saying, all this other stuff you also have to do. And if you want to see how that works, let's go just back up for a second to, to verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, because, or for, it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So, written in the book of the law talks about the Torah of Moses. It is the written Torah, the first five books of 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 the Bible. And The first five books of the Bible, the Torah says that everybody who doesn't abide by the things that are written in this book is cursed. So at the first half of that sentence, it says all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And what that tells you then is works of the law are something different than the written Torah of Moses. Okay, And it is, in fact, as I have said, it's a rabbinic term of art, and it's talking about the oral Torah. So what... Paul is arguing against is the oral Torah up until this point. Okay. Now the argument is fixing to shift. 
So as we get now into verse 15, the argument's going to shift a little bit, and, and we're going to need to think about this. So verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Messiah, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promises void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. All right, so let's unpack all that. Okay? Um, Now, first off, what he's talking about is Genesis chapter 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham, and it says in there, and Abraham believed, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Okay? So Abraham gets the promises of God directly from God by covenant. And what Paul is saying is, all right, you've got this covenant that God has made with Abraham. It is not possible then at some future date to alter the terms of the covenant. So he's saying, just as with a human contract or a covenant, if you sign a covenant, you know, if I sign a contract with Eric to buy a piece of his land or something like that, and six months later Eric doesn't like it and wants to change the terms of the covenant, I go back and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, we have a written agreement here. And you can't change it unless I agree to it. Okay? And so that's what Paul is saying is, God and Abraham have an agreement. And the fact that God is going to make an agreement with Israel later, 430 years later, at Sinai, cannot change the terms of the first covenant. In other words, all he's doing is talking contract law here, not doing anything weird. So far, so good. And Oh, by the way, everybody listen real close now. What that means is the Sunday church, when it says the covenant and the Torah is done away with, is wrong. Because Paul is saying right here, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't change the terms of a covenant. So for the Sunday church to say, oh, all that's done away with because Yeshua came and all that kind of stuff, that that flies in the face of Paul's own argument here. Because Paul is saying, once it's ratified, it stays and it cannot be changed in the future. Yeah, the covenant uh, comment was that the covenant with Abraham made in, in uh, Genesis 15 is a one-way covenant. In fact, Abraham was unconscious when the covenant was ratified. God did it. And, and that's a true statement. Comment was, would it be correct to say that all the covenants that God made are forever? And that's correct. They are. All of the promises and covenants that God has made are permanent, forever, not to be changed, and can be relied on. And, and you remember we started off this study by talking about Luther, remember, and the Reformation. And Luther's problem is that he became, there was a philosophical shift about the 13th century. And Luther became convinced of an omnipotent God, a God that can do anything. Well, if you take that to its philosophical extreme, What that means is God doesn't have to follow his own word. Because if he can do anything, he can in fact break his own word. 
And that just freaked Luther out. And Luther was absolutely terrified of going to hell, and he had no philosophical basis for saying he wasn't. So what he, what he basically said is, all I can do is put my faith in Scripture and hope that God saves me. And that's a radical departure from the way God has been understood by the Jews, and in fact, the way God was understood prior to the 12th century. And from that, a whole lot of our modern theology flows. And that's how we got into this study. God is sovereign is a different concept than omnipotent. Okay, and I'll, and I'll, I'll talk about sovereign in just a minute. So what Luther and Calvin came to believe, because they believed in an omnipotent God, and as I say, they got this from the nominalist revolution that took off in the 12th century, is... Where was I? An omnipotent God. Sovereign God. Uh, all right, I'm, I've just lost my train of thought. It'll come back. All right, go back, go over to sovereign. What sovereign means is not that the sovereign can do anything he wants to. That's not what the term means. What sovereign means is nobody else makes rules for him. Okay? He gets to make his own rules. So a sovereign king gets to make his own rules. But if you remember reading throughout all scripture, you had, for example, the law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be changed. So once the sovereign, the king, made a rule, he was then bound to live by it. That's the whole thing around the story of Esther. Xerxes got snookered into making a decree that said that the Jews could be destroyed. And, of course, once he'd made that decree, he couldn't unmake it. And therein lies the entire story of Esther. And so, although he can't unmake it, what he then did is issue a subsequent decree. He says, all right, Jews are still fair game. But I'm also adding a decree now saying they can fight back. So at that point, the whole thing ceased to be fun, and, and they quit. Yeah, when people say God is sovereign, that is absolutely correct. And what it means is... There is no other body or no other entity that can impose its rules on God. He makes his own rules. He doesn't have to ask us or anything else. However, that doesn't mean he can do anything he wants. Because what he's decided to do, again, one of his own rules, is he will abide by his word. And that's what we put our trust in. That's what distinguishes him, for example, from the God of Islam, because that God is omnipotent in the Lutheran sense, which is he's capricious and he can do anything he wants and you've got no idea what he's going to do tomorrow. So all you do is you run around in terror all the time because you don't know what this God is going to do. Our God says, you can trust me. I will keep my word. I will perform my word. And I've written it down and I've said it and you can trust it. And if you live as if you trust my word then you are one of mine. See, that's what launched this study of Galatians is because Luther hit this problem of an omnipotent God and he goes into Galatians and he comes up with the only thing you can do is fall down before God, trust him, and hope that he's going to give you asbestos shorts because there's nothing you can do. And so he, and so he was literally in terror all of his life because he was never able to be convinced that 
he wasn't, you know, dangling over a barbecue by the merest spider web. Okay? And to tag on something Ray said, the Catholic theologians, the Lutheran theologians, the Calvinist Reformed theologians, were not setting out to twist Scripture. What they were doing is they were coming to Scripture from a base of Greek philosophy. And so if you come to, to Scripture from the position of your understanding of the world is through the lens of Greek philosophy, then you have a different approach to the Scriptures than if you grow up walking in Torah. Your worldview is different. So you come at it from one perspective, whereas somebody who grows up in Torah comes at it from a different perspective. Uh, the way the Hebrews come at it is it's holistic. In other words, they are perfectly capable of having a whole bunch of different concepts that on the surface are contradictory, and they see underneath them a unifying whole, and they're just fine with it. Whereas the Greek logic looks at those contradictions, and it just bends their heads. Because according to a logical system, you've got to find some overarching meta-knowledge that allows you to knit all those together into a coherent framework. That's very different than the Hebrew way of approaching it. So if you come at it from a Greek perspective and you look at the scriptures, you wind up with very different emphases, very different understanding. So it isn't malicious what they were doing. It was simply that was who they were. And, and, And the other part of the problem is underneath all of that is this edge of Lutheran terror because what they've got underneath the All of this is if you go back to the law, you lose your salvation. And that terror comes from Luther. And so there's this fine oil slick of terror, if you will, that's over the entire Christian church because they have been taught all their lives that you don't want to mess with that law stuff or you'll lose your salvation. So when they hit these logical conundrums and things they don't understand or trying to do it, they will just flail around like a bunch of crawfish, staying away from any argument that takes you into Torah because, they, they, because they're terrified. Now, I mean, you know, they wouldn't say that, but that's sort of the sheen, if you will, over the entirety of the Sunday church way of looking at things. In Isaiah 29, there's a, there's a process of exile, and we are all in exile. Those of us who are of the house of Ephraim, those of us who are of the house of Judah, those of us who are grafted in Gentiles, those of us who are just plain old Gentiles that are God-fearers and not wanting to be grafted in. All of those people, we are in exile. And, and if you go to Isaiah 29, there's a process of exile. And what God does is he takes away seers, S-E-E-R-S, wise men. He takes away prophets. So he says, I'll close your eyes and your ears, which is seers and prophets. And he says, I will close the book. And the book will be like, if you give a book to someone who cannot read, he says, I cannot read it because I'm illiterate. If you get it to somebody who can read, he says, I cannot read because it's sealed. So what we're doing is we are dealing with a sealed book, those of us in exile. And it is my belief and hope and prayer that we are now in the time of history when the books are being unsealed because there's a reversal of that process toward the end. And it's my prayer that that's what's going on here, is the books are being unsealed so we understand what God truly is saying to us. The comment was that 
Verse 17 says that the Mosaic Covenant does not annul the Abrahamic Covenant. And what I am then saying by extension is all of God's covenants are in fact forever. So the, the Torah is also forever and will not be annulled by the New Covenant, just as the Abrahamic Covenant is not annulled by the Torah. So what I'm saying is God is trustworthy. He means what he says. He says what he means in every instance. And the covenants are, in fact, cumulative is probably as good a word as any. Sorry, right, now, I'm going to actually read a little further and, and, then, and then come back. All right, so, verse 19. Why then the law? Now, the law here is talking about the Torah. Given at Sinai. So, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could get life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Yeshua Messiah might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Torah. Torah. This is Torah we're talking about. We are not talking about Jewish oral law. We're talking Torah here. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be revealed. So then, the law is our, was our guardian until Messiah came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Messiah Yeshua, we are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All right. That's going to take some unpacking. Fortunately, we are going through this on Shabbat. On Shabbat, we've been talking about the giving of the Torah at Sinai. And what happened at Sinai, if you read in Exodus 19, Moses goes back and forth between God and Israel as a shaliach, a sent one. And what he is doing is he is negotiating a marriage contract. So God says to Moses, go say this specifically to Israel. Let's go read it. Rather than me paraphrasing, let's read it. We'll go back to uh, Exodus 19. So I'm in Exodus 19, and I'm in verse 3. And Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, This you shall say to the house of Jacob, and declare to the children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. Indeed, all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nations. nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. That is a formal offer. Agree to this, do this, and to me you will be a special treasure. Moses goes and makes the offer. And then if you come down 
to verse 8. So Moses makes the offer, now and down in verse 8, Exodus 19.8. All the people answered as one, saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So now you have an acceptance. So what you have here in God's law is a betrothal. A betrothal is a marriage in everything except consummation. So if you decide, after being betrothed, that you really can't stand each other, and you decide to split, you have to have a divorce at that time. The husband has to give the wife, or the, his, his uh, fiance, his bride, a get. It, it, it's a divorce at that time that is required. So the marriage at this point is made. It is not yet consummated. Three days later, Israel is to stand at the base of the mountain after having purified herself, taken a mikvah, washed her clothes, etc. She now stands at the bottom, and what we are having there is a consummation. In a human marriage, when the husband and wife come together and consummate the marriage, what happens is there is a transfer of substance from the man to the woman with the intention of passing on life. That's what the consummation is. Husband and wife come together and... All things being equal and nothing pathological happens, the idea here is you're bringing forth new life. That's the purpose. Well, what God is doing with Israel is he is speaking out his word to them, and his words are life. And so what he is doing is he is basically speaking his word into his bride with the intention of bringing forth life. Now, What happens, however, is Israel, after the first two commandments, says, Stop. Moses, you go talk to him and tell us what he said, because if we hear him anymore, we're going to die. So the bride at that point says, No. So the consummation doesn't happen. At that point, we now have tablets of stone. That's when the tablets of stone come in. So after Israel says, if we listen to the voice of God directly, we're going to die. Moses, you go find out what he means and come back and tell us and and, and bring it back. That's when we get the tablets of stone. And the tablets of stone are a metaphor for hearts of stone. In other words, God tried to write his Torah on the living hearts of Israel. Israel would not. So what Israel then, what God then has to do is take the words that he was going to write on their hearts, write them on tablets of stone, and they got to schlep those rocks around for the next 1,500 years to remind them that they have hearts of stone. But they are still married. Because the marriage, even though it has not been consummated, has been offered and accepted. So what we have now that Paul is talking about here in Galatians is he is talking about these tablets of stone, the written Torah. God never intended for the Torah to be written down. And if you go to to, uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. See, a time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, there's your new covenant, and that's the only place in Scripture that it shows up. The term new covenant is right there. It's repeated in Hebrews, but that's the only place it shows up, right there. 
See, a time is coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. All right, now there the Sunday church comes and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is going to be different from that old Torah. You understand the thought process? It says here, it will not be like. Okay, and, and, and it will not. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant which they broke. And Moses literally broke it. He threw the rocks down and broke them. We had to get another set. A covenant which we, they broke, though I espoused them, in other words, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But such is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah into their innermost being and inscribe it upon their hearts. Then I will be their God and they shall be my people. Notice that the original offering offer was, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Remember, clear back at Sinai, Exodus 19. That was part of the offer. I, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what he's doing is repeating it now, and he's saying it's no more going to be written on rocks, it's going to be written on hearts of flesh like I wanted to do all those thousands of years ago. The content of the Torah is no different whether it's written on rocks or written on human flesh. The actual words do not change. The medium on which it's written is what changes. And it goes from rocks and parchments to human flesh. That's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So when Paul is now talking about this thing that has us in prison, what he's talking about then is the tablets of stone or written on parchment or whatever, which we are carrying around as a really poor substitute for having it written on your heart. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying because we would not back there... 1,500 years ago, we now have to do second best. The words don't change. The concepts are no different. But now we've got to study them. Now we've got to read them. Now we've got to teach them. Whereas when God finally writes them on your heart, it will just be part of your nature. But the thing that's written doesn't change. The question was, would I agree that some people have the Torah written on their hearts? No. What I believe is going back to the garden and the seed. And Yeshua's teaching on the soil and the seed, right? The Word of God, the Torah, is seed. It's information. It's life. In other words, a seed is the part of agriculture that carries the life. The life isn't in the dirt. The life isn't in the water. The life isn't in the sunshine. The life is in the seed. And so what, you, what your job is, is you take the seed, which is the word of God, and you take the soil of your heart and you break that soil up and you work it and you plow it and you, and you make it hospitable to the seed of the word of God. And then the seed of the word of God will blossom in your heart and will bring forth abundant fruit. That's what you're seeing in godly people, is people who have broken up the soil, the stony soil of their heart, and made it more like good soil, so that the seed of the word of God can germinate and flower and blossom and produce great fruit. Yes, if you quit attending to the soil, it, you're just exactly right. People walk on it and it gets packed down and gets hard and quits producing fruit. Absolutely, good, good point. I agree.
Yeah, Galatians 3.25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In other words, once you get the Torah written in your heart, you don't need to carry around the rocks anymore. Yeah, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yep, hang on. <clears throat> what we're doing is we're having a Greek argument here. Okay, we're having a Greek argument here. And what we're doing is we're chopping words and chopping logic. Let's go back to uh, Ezekiel verse uh, eleven nineteen. Let's start there. That's This is also the New Covenant. And verse 17, Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Yet say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. And they shall return there and do away with all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh that they may follow my Torah and faithfully observe my rules. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. Substantively, there's no difference between this and what we read in Jeremiah. But it makes it very clear that the new covenant is a regathering concept. And Jeremiah 31 is, is the same thing. It is a regathering of Israel concept. And what happens is, when God finally regathers all of Israel, and that's all of Israel, not just Judah, he's going to bring them back, and they're still going to have hearts of stone. So what he's going to do is he's going to say, all right, this is coming to an end. This world is coming to an end. You guys are getting a heart transplant. Pulls out the stony heart, puts in a flesh heart, and Israel then becomes his special people, as it says they will be. The nations will still exist. So the the new covenant is literally in, in your in a Cliff Notes version right there. It's repeated in Ezekiel, I think, thirty six. Twenty three. Ezekiel thirty six twenty three. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. This is God speaking to Israel. So I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when, through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In other words, this is God. Israel isn't ready. Israel is not particularly repentant. Israel is not ready to be the bride. God is saying, all right, we're done. And... You guys have profaned me among the nations, and I'm going to bring you back because of my great name, and and by bringing you back and doing this with you, I will glorify myself among the nations. That's, That's the object of the exercise, okay? Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Remember at the foot of the mountain, before they show up, they got to wash. Remember? They got to wash. So we're doing it again. You're going to wash. And I will cleanse you. From all your idols I will cleanse you. 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I will give your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. There it is again. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and plain and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, and you shall never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. That's the new covenant. The new covenant is all of that. God finally has it up to here with the world, and he reaches in and he grabs his people, pulls them out, does a heart transplant, makes them the people he wants them to be, and he does it for his own glory. That, that, that entire process from beginning to end is the new covenant. Now, one other, one other thing, one other thing, to, to come back to Teresa's argument. Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll pick it up in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, now I'm not going to go into predestination. Calvinists will show up here and, and their arguments are bogus. Just, just go back to everything is under the control of God except for the fear of God. And, and read that in, that way. Let's start again. 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first hope in Messiah might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the seeds, right, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee? of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, yes, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is your marker. He's your claim check. He is your guarantee that when God regathers Israel and puts hearts of flesh in our bodies, you will be there. You will have an inheritance there. And inheritance, by the way, in the Bible always means land. So the Holy Spirit is your claim check. He's your guarantee of an inheritance. So, yes, I absolutely agree that you have the Holy Spirit. Yes, I absolutely agree that the Holy Spirit comes alongside you and helps you, you know, break up the stony ground of your heart so that the Word of God can take root and bear fruit. But you are not living under the new covenant. That is yet future. You have a promise that you will be. And, and the marker of that promise is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, 25. Uh, yeah, no, it isn't. Galatians 3.21. Um, let's pick that up next time. We are just about out of time. Okay, so we'll, we got less than a minute to go. Um, but anyway, the, the, the point is, the new covenant is more than having the Holy Spirit. It's more than being baptized and doing all of the stuff 
to plant the seeds of God in your heart and have them bear fruit. It involves a regathering of the nation. It involves a literal heart transplant. Okay? And so it, it, it's a different concept. Now, that would somebody like to close in prayer. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this study and would like to hear more, go to www.crimsonthread.com. There you'll find this study in its entirety, as well as other resources for studying the scriptures from a messianic perspective. Thank you and shalom.